Hi, listeners. I have a new show out that takes a deep dive into professions that investigate the darkest crimes and pursue the most diabolical criminals in society. It's called Dark Arenas, and it's exclusively available on Stitcher Premium. But we're unlocking an episode so you can hear it for free right now. Now, I'll warn you, this episode might be hard to hear, but this is the most important one because we've teamed up with the FBI to get some really important information out there. The FBI is looking for someone and they need your help. So please listen through the hard to hear because we have to work together to keep our children safe. The rest of this season covers different topics in the crime space. We interview a former CIA director who was a spy, a forensic anthropologist, a crime scene assessment specialist, and so much more. This is a crime junkie's true inside look at how the people we talk about every week actually solve the darkest crimes and catch the most deviant perpetrators. If you like what you hear and want to listen to the rest of the season, you can hear new episodes weekly on Stitcher Premium. And there's a new episode to go listen to right now. For a free month, go to stitcher.com slash premium and use the promo code arenas when you select a monthly plan. That's stitcher.com slash premium promo code arenas. But for now, enjoy the free episode. The content of Dark Arenas includes topics and subject matter that may not be suitable for all audiences. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals participating in the podcast and do not represent those of AudioChuck or its employees. Information discussed by the host and interviewees includes content related to crimes against children, abuse, acts of terrorism, and violence. Listener discretion is advised. Imagine you're putting a puzzle together, but all of the individual pieces are grainy and they're dark and pixelated. Many of them look identical. The majority of the colors are dark tones or neutral. There's few hints to tell you what exactly the master image is supposed to be, but with a little effort, you begin to slowly make out what it is. You finally get enough assembled to realize that the individual slivers put together don't make a beautiful image at all. The picture you're staring at, the one you've spent hours piecing together, is of a child being sexually abused. The suspect in the picture has no fear. They want whoever views this image to know they hold the power in the scenario playing out in the grainy dark pixels. But you don't care what their motivation is. You care about one thing and one thing only finding them, and rescuing the victim. But that's going to take work. So as hard as it is, you return to the image, put your head down, and get back to work, meticulously piecing more and more of the slivers together. You've got a long way to go, and there are more clues to find. Clues hidden within the image that will lead you straight to the crime scene. After all, don't they always say... The devil is in the details? Right now, you've never known that to be more true. In today's episode, we're going into the dark arena of what it's like to parse through child sexual abuse material for a living.
A big gulp of crisp fall air catches in my throat as I get out of my Uber in a large office park on the outskirts of Baltimore, Washington International Airport. I hear that faint, uninterrupted roar of jet engines cruising low overhead. I glance at my watch, check the time, and honestly, I think for sure I'm at the wrong address. The office park is completely desolate, except a small crew of landscapers working a few buildings away. I think to myself, this is where the FBI's Baltimore headquarters is? It's an average-looking, sleek five-story office building at the end of a cul-de-sac next to a busy airport. I'll be honest, I was expecting a little more government security fanfare. A quick tug at the front door handle, and I easily entered fully expecting an annoyed security guard to be on the other side, ready to chide me for being too quick for him. But there isn't a security guard to check my ID. There's no one. There's no cameras, not even a metal detector. The only things staring back at me in the echoey lobby are empty office suites and a bench surrounded by dozens of potted plants. Like, way too many plants. In a way, the lobby reminded me of a funeral home. Not sure what to do, I slip a text to my contact with the bureau, letting her know I've arrived. I adjust my face mask a couple of times to let some breaths of fresh air in, and once again, I'm hit with the invasive presence of all of these potted plants. They're huddled around me like needy shelter dogs. The smell of soil in them fills the air. Just as I'm getting overwhelmed with that smell, An elevator at the far end of the lobby opens up and out steps a well-dressed woman who introduces herself to me as FBI Supervisory Special Agent Karen Jordan. She's my interview for the day. We greet each other and Karen informs me that the media liaison for the Bureau is en route and she'll join us shortly. We step onto the elevator and make our way up to higher floors that look very different than the lobby. There are way fewer potted plants and a lot more computers, filing cabinets, tables, and offices. As we make our way to a large conference room, Karen informs me that we're now entering what's called an off-site for the FBI's Criminal Division for Violent Crimes. I think to myself, off-site? So that's why it feels so normal. It's supposed to be. But I quickly find out what FBI agents do here is the furthest thing from a normal person's job. I work crimes against children, predominantly victim identification. Karen is a supervisor of a team of agents who day in and day out review and catalog tens of thousands of images of child sexual abuse material. These images are photographs and videos of adults sexually abusing or molesting minors. Our day-to-day is just constantly looking at these images. We look at images, and those images may depict subjects who are abusing these um, victims, and we're looking to identify them both nationally and internationally by working with the Office of Public Affairs and doing press releases to seek the public's assistance in identifying these um, subjects. Karen actually manages a website for the Bureau's Endangered Child Alert Program, also known as ECAP. The webpage displays images of these violent crimes against children, with the suspect's or person of interest's face visible, but the sexual crime and victim's identity is obscured. We don't want to re-victimize the victim. We don't want to put their face out there. We want to protect those victims. And also, we don't want to expose the public to what's actually happening to the victim. It really seems like a troubling idea when you think about it. 
I mean, putting even heavily edited images of child sexual abuse material on the internet seems risky. When you go to the ECAT webpage, I'm not going to lie, it's disturbing to look at. But to Karen's point, the perpetrators have put their faces in these photos and videos. So why not use that against them to spread their pictures to the masses, hoping someone will come forward and identify them? Honestly, it's the best and most necessary form of public shaming I can think of. The ECAP page pushes out new images every few months, with the end goal being figure out who the bad person is and simultaneously rescue the victim currently being assaulted or a victim who was assaulted at some point in the past. There's so many victims to identify that we may have to focus sometimes on the recent ones because we know that there's active abuse taking place. So we want to narrow down that scope. Not to say that we're going to neglect the ones that have been abused in the past. It's just there's just so many victims to identify that sometimes we have to narrow down our scope until we can identify those set of victims and then move back. Is it more predominantly male offenders? How common are female offenders? What does that look like in terms of your experience of what you review? Only based on my experience, I've, only, I've mostly seen male offenders. But when I first started this violation, my first subject was a female offender. It was a mother abusing her children. I have actually about two Jane Doe's in my ECAP page where they're female offenders. I do see fairly older males, but we do come across younger males. We sometimes even teeter on as young as 18. So it just, just depends. It does vary. That's a scary thought. Abusers as young as 18 and victims, sometimes mere infants. It's painful. It's actually excruciating at times because it goes down to even an infant. And those people can't speak up for themselves. And so it pulls on the heartstrings. People of all genders are committing these heinous crimes. I think it's hard for us in the general public to truly comprehend that. Because in some ways, many of us, including myself, have that stereotypical old creepy guy in his basement description in our head of the type of person who is capable of abusing kids like this. But in reality, that stereotype doesn't even begin to accurately reflect the people who are sexually abusing children and recording it. I mean, Karen proved it to me. With only a few clicks in her office's database, she could access thousands of photos of child sexual abuse material that she reviews every day, confirming that the socioeconomic backgrounds, ethnicities, and genders of these kinds of offenders run the gamut. What I find super fascinating is that Karen and her team aren't just skimming through these heart-wrenching images to find the faces of the perpetrators. They're actually meticulously observing everything else in the images or video clips as well. They're looking at the stuff within view, outside of the crime taking place. When Karen looks at these images, she's looking for details in the room, car, or space in which the sexual crime is happening. A hat, a baseball cap, sometimes a license plate. Stuff that most people don't pick up on. Stuff that, when isolated by itself, speaks volumes. Those elements can help us narrow down maybe a time frame, a location.
Have you ever taken a nice photo of something or someone and you go back later and you look at it and realize that it was being photobombed or maybe a bird was flying into frame at the last second or a sign was growing out of someone's head that you didn't intend to be there? We've all had that experience probably once or twice, right? It's inherent whenever you snap a picture or record a video and you're focused on the main action of whatever it is you're trying to capture, not what's in the background or inching into the side of the frame. Well, FBI agents reviewing child sexual abuse material obsess over the typically unwanted or innocuous background content. They're not annoyed by it like we are. They're appreciative of it. You see, because it's their job to notice stuff in the background. Every single pixel of an illicit photograph or someone sexually abusing a child is important to the agents on the FBI's ECAP team. We have certain programs within the FBI that we can run their faces through to try to identify them. But in interim, we still look at the images that they're in and look at clues in the background to see if we can narrow down where in the United States or in the world that they may be. We just look at the basic image itself, right? The image can give us a lot of data in the background. There's certain coding in the background that can give us certain time frames, what it was taken by, what camera versus phone, certain things like that. We also look at the images to see if there's a picture in the background, if there is a, a bottle in the background, a soda can, that can give us a time frame. In some of these images, we may have a Coke bottle. And you know, throughout the years, Coke has changed the outside of their bottle. So we may reach out to Coca-Cola and go, what years was this bottle distributed? When did you sell this bottle? And they can give us a set of years. So now we have a time frame of where maybe how old that child might have been to where we are right now. Those things help us. You know, a shirt, we may look at a shirt and go, oh, maybe this was sold by Kohl's. And so we'll reach out to Kohl's and say, hey, at what time frame did you sell this particular shirt? It looks like it's a Sonoma shirt. And so they'll give us a time frame as to when they sold that shirt, and that gives us a time frame. Or maybe where in the United States they might have sold that shirt. So that helps us as well, or versus where in the world. What are clues in some images that indicate the abuse is not taking place in the United States? It could be something like a plug in the background, right? We, we, we're in the United States, so our plugs look different than the European plugs overseas. So we can look at a plug in the background and see. Maybe there's periodicals in the background. Maybe there's a bookcase and there's books in the back. If they're in English versus another language, we'll look at that. It may be a box. There's one case that we have where the box has what it appears to be a Spanish written shoe box. So now we're narrowing down what Spanish countries are looking, you know, so we'll put that out there. In the United States, things are large, things are big, whereas overseas there's sometimes certain areas that are small and you just look at certain patterns in the background, certain scenery, and we'll look at our geospatial unit and say, hey, what is it that you see here? And they may give us a location of where they believe that child might be or that subject might be. So, Supervisory Special Agent Karen Jordan and her agents in her office are essentially running a forensics lab, but instead of swabbing Q-tips and using pipettes, they're hunting for visual trace evidence that's hidden within the content of a sexually illicit image of a child. The backgrounds of these images aren't benign. They're potential bingo moments. It could be items in the background where it shows a certificate to a school. Right, where well, we can't make clear of where the name might be, but we might be able to see the name of the school sometimes. So that tells us the location. Has there ever been anything in a case where it was clear 
Oh, <laughs> yes. As day. Yes, clear as day. It could be something that they're wearing that's like a jersey to a team. So there was one set of images where we saw that they were wearing something that led us to Michigan. And so we knew clear point that they were in Michigan. So that gave us a clear target. The ECAP website has a seeking information page that's home to dozens of pictures of items, bedspreads, walls, furniture, belongings, paint, you name it. These are all items that if the right person were to look at them, they would be able to identify a possible location or who some of those items might belong to. That tip would help the FBI learn a lot more information about the image and where it came from. In some cases, tips lead FBI agents with ECAP outside of the United States. We do deal a lot with the international community on a daily basis because, of course, this is online. So it crosses international borders all the time. So I deal with our international counterparts all the time. We get referrals over here versus referrals over there we send. Um, perfect example, we identified a subject that we've had for years. Um, he was our John Doe 30. No, actually, 31. A, and a, a subject, uh, one of our ECAP subjects, but he had a victim, of course. Okay. And he was in Russia. So we sent it to our legal attaché and, and sent Russian authorities out there, and they were able to successfully identify the subject. Give us anything that you may have a knowledge on. We'll definitely look into it. My team takes their time looking to each tip and vetting through each tip to make sure that we can identify that subject. And it has happened out of 41 14 of them have been identified due to the public. One of them we were able to identify this year, and that was a case that dated back to 1998. In the event that there isn't anything in the background of an image that helps narrow down where it was taken or when, there's always another tool the FBI has up its sleeve, an advantage of the modern digital age and advances in technology, a word called metadata. Is there anything in the data or the metadata of the image that can link to its origin? Or is there just so much passing and trafficking of this material that knowing where it originated is almost impossible to know? No, there's certain things in the metadata. The metadata can also tell us the time frame, as well as what camera was used, if it was a cell phone, and maybe we can carve deeper down and reach out to the organizations that own those phones to say, where in the United States did you sell that phone? Where in overseas did you sell that camera? And that can help us narrow down a location, whether it's here or overseas. But Karen says even with advancements in technology and all of the resources that the FBI has at its disposal, criminals are working just as hard. And they too have tactics and tech skills. We do have some perpetrators who are very smart in the technology realm that try to hide their activity. We have to be careful when we walk in because we can do something simple as opening a door and it'll wipe out everything because they have certain things in place to wipe out stuff. Some of these tech-savvy perpetrators use programs to recopy or manipulate an illicit image's origin date to hide when it was taken and where. Sometimes we can look at the metadata, sometimes we can't because sometimes they, it's manipulated or it might be several images down the line. Some suspects have realized that the authorities are on to them and that ECAP is alive and well, so they try and obscure their faces in identifying marks. They're getting smarter these days. They're trying to actually eliminate their faces at times. But if we can, we try our best to 
even just get anything, a side view, a tattoo, or anything out there so that people can help us identify these subjects. Some suspects even go as far as hiding illicit content in massive volumes of computer memory in an attempt to overload the FBI's ability to process through a storage device. There are times that they do play slick <laughs> and, and try to find ways to renaming things, manipulating images, and trying to hide certain things. It may not be on the machine, but it might be in the cloud. It might be somewhere else in the house that they're accessing. There's terabytes of information. And so we are looking at still like thumb drives, computers. We are looking at the cloud. You have to look at the cloud. Um, There's certain drop boxes, certain things out there that they're using storage that we don't have we don't have access to on the actual device. We now have to be creative in how we look at things and what we look for in things because the volume is so significant and we do have tools that can process that data to help us now go through it much faster. According to the FBI, in the United States, people who get caught possessing, manufacturing, or soliciting child sexual abuse material are all viewed relatively the same in the eyes of the law. At the hands of the American federal justice system, many, if not all, of the people prosecuted and convicted of these crimes face some of the harshest penalties in the world. According to the 2019 publication of the United States Sentencing Commission report, the minimum penalty for sex trafficking a minor is 10 years. If you travel across state lines intending to have sex with a child and they're under 16 years old, you get a minimum of 15 to 30 years in prison. If you produce child sexual abuse material, you could be looking at a minimum of 10 to 15 years. Buying, selling, or otherwise transferring children for the purpose of producing child sexual abuse material will get you at least 30 years. And this is all for folks who don't already have criminal records. Punishments for prior offenders or felons can be even harsher. Oh, and don't think that just since you might be living outside of the United States that you're scot-free. Everybody knows that the United States is pretty extensive with their sentencing, but in certain European countries, they may get maybe as much as three to five years. So it's significantly less. And so we work a lot with those countries with that because, um, for example, we have a case right now where we're looking to extradite the guy and bring him here, bringing them here and having them prosecuted here because we had victims that that person overseas exploited. Karen says a good portion of extradited suspects who would normally face lenient sentences overseas for this kind of crime are usually perpetrators of sextortion and may have never even physically touched an American minor. A subject can actually be an offender but not be a hands-on offender. A sextortionist, as the FBI calls them, convinces children to send them explicit photos of themselves over the Internet. Then the sextortionist turns around and threatens to expose the child if they tell anyone, or if the child decides they want to stop sending the sextortionist images. America hands down harsh sentences to these kinds of offenders as well. Some of them have gotten much as 50 years in jail. There's actually two that I can think of that they've got close to 50 years in jail. The fact of the matter is, whether it's hands-off abuse or hands-on, the FBI isn't subjective. Agents know the law, and when they identify and arrest suspects, they enforce the law impartially. 
it's production. It's the production of it. It's not, child abuse is usually on the state level, but on the federal level is because you put them in an image. You memorialize their abuse in an image. So we can get you on production. We can get you on distribution, which is trading it with other people, passing it on. And we can also get you with possession, basically having it in your possession, storing it and keeping it. So we can get you on those three things federally on, with regards to this violation. For Karen, the most disturbing aspect of these criminals is that many of them express no remorse for their actions. She says even under weight of criminal conviction or the looming threat of facing federal prosecution, many perpetrators aren't convinced they're doing anything wrong. They're normalizing it. They're talking amongst each other as if this is something that's natural and normal and not dark to them, while we're on the outside looking at it and seeing it as dark. The chatter that you see when they exchange is awfully disturbing, but they think it's normal. One of the most common normalized places this crime is happening, within the four walls of a family's home. A lot of them what we see, if it's a set of images with different victims, it may be siblings. One thing any detective or investigator in law enforcement will tell you is that it's usually a person who is close to a crime victim who's responsible for doing bad things to that victim. It's someone with close access and relationship to the victim and has power over them. Now, there are certainly always exceptions, but typically, crime victims are targeted by people that they know. And according to Karen Jordan, that is often the case when it comes to people who sexually abuse children and photograph or videotape it. One of her first arrests for the FBI's Violent Crimes Division was a stepfather who sexually groomed his stepdaughter over a period of years and through a series of dark web backdoors, advertised the images within child sexual abuse material forums. It was a case that we had for a number of years because unfortunately we saw age progression in the images. So we saw the child growing up. But from there, just doing the same thing over and over again, just reverse our images, look up and all that stuff, we were able to just go down a, a hole that just led us from one step to the next step. That was one that was very, that I remember because I was an essay, just a regular agent working the case. I wasn't the program manager over the program at the time. It was something where I almost had to hold back my tears because of how appreciated the little girl was. That was a tearjerker, you know, to watch her disclose what happened. I interviewed the mom. Mom didn't know. It was the stepdad. And from there, Things just fell into place. We were able to arrest them. We worked with the locals to arrest them. And the person ended up facing 18 years in jail. One of Karen's biggest fears is that in light of the COVID-19 pandemic, more families have been staying inside or have merged to include extended family members or friends due to financial strains. She says this kind of scenario opens the door for perpetrators of these crimes to have access to more children. In our interview, she predicted that ECAP's caseload will skyrocket in 2021. It's pretty nerve-wracking. I, 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 I can't even imagine. I feel like our scope of work will 
increase significantly because they're home. And sometimes their, their safe haven can be school. I can only imagine when things lift that our numbers will increase significantly in terms of identifying victims. It's a sickening thought, but one that Karen is trying to prepare her office to handle. That's why she's continually adding more and more photos of suspected perpetrators to the ECAP webpage. New ones just went up this month at www.fbi.gov forward slash wanted forward slash E-C-A-P. We'll link that to the show notes as well. As Karen and I wrapped up our interview, I paused to ask her an obvious question, a question I'd ask myself if I signed up for her job. How do you guys have the stomach to do this? What's that drive? It takes a... It takes a certain kind of person. Not everybody in the FBI can work this violation. It's a volunteer violation. They can't make us work it. Sometimes I have to take off the video, but then at the same time, you have to listen to the sound because you may hear something in the background that can help us identify a TV playing, anything. So it is taxing, I will say. When I started working this violation, it was very hard for me. There are certain matters that you'll just hit a set of images that you just can't take. So with that in mind, we kind of work in stages, and eventually you do get numb. But it never takes away the fact that we are still hurt by what we see. What are some of those images that really can become too much? Well, without being in detail, I mean, certain things like video. For me, that's very difficult because it's not just images, they're video. And you hear sound and you hear effects that you just find very disturbing that can impact you. And so with that in mind, it kind of varies based on image, based on the heinous things that these predators do to these children that people just cannot imagine. I didn't even imagine walking into it. I was actually pretty naive to it until you actually walk into a set of images and it just throws you back. And then you have to take that moment to step away, sometimes even take the day off, because it can get impactful and it can affect us mentally. We have certain measures in place where we have safeguarding, where we have to meet with a counselor to ensure that we are mentally okay, that we can take this violation. Do you have kids? I actually don't. I don't have children. I think it, for me, it's easier that I don't have children. I don't know if I could be a mom and work this violation. I would have to face that when I come down the line. I think it may make me more passionate to want to work even harder, even though I don't think I can be any more passionate than I am now. I can't speak for moms. I can only speak for myself in saying that it is hard regardless. And it makes you look at life differently. It does impact us. I find myself being more protective in terms of my friends who have children. I find myself advising them on certain things that may be very innocent on their end that they can't, that they shouldn't do. Something, you know, taking a picture of their child in diapers and posting on social media. I, I tell them not to do that because these perpetrators, they look for that stuff. So I find myself educating my friends on how to take pictures or how to be alert and be focused on what your child's doing, asking how your child's stay is. And just so that because you have to be leery on people of trust because some of these offenders are in a position of trust. They're not just parents. They can be uncles. They can be anything. They can be mothers. They can be aunts. And so it's almost being mindful. And so I find myself educating my friends a lot on that. In her line of work, I don't know how Karen does it. 
It's for sure a dark arena that more people need to be educated about, but I just don't think I'd have the stomach to do it. I think so many of us don't want to admit or be reminded that production and possession of child sexual abuse materials exists so prevalently all over the world, but especially here in the United States. I think we all need to be engaged with efforts like the FBI's ECAP program to help the FBI catch predators. It's just one small way we can help protect the innocent. These are the thoughts that I stewed on while I waited for my Uber to pick me up after the interview. I didn't wait in the lobby with all the potted plants. I wandered outside and gripped my coat jacket because the wind had picked up at that point. As I sat on the bench nearby, my legs shook resting against the cold metal. Feeling a chill and honestly a little overwhelmed, I looked down and noticed a small flower. It was a bud, poking out from the ground at the corner of the bench leg. The landscapers who'd been by earlier hadn't cut the ground around where it was blooming. They'd purposely left it alone, to grow, unharmed and untouched. If you work in a dark arena and are interested in being featured in a future season, email admin at audiochuck.com. That's A-D-M-I-N at audiochuck.com. This episode of Dark Arenas was written and produced by Delia D'Ambra, with writing assistance from executive producer Ashley Flowers. You can find pictures and all of the source material for this episode on our website, darkarenas.com. Dark Arenas is an Audio Chuck original show. So, what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve? Oh.